Let's pray and turn our hearts again to the word of God. Father, we open your word with hope and expectation. And we pray, Lord God, that as we do, your spirit would exert his powerful, sovereign, personal influence here. And, and even praying for influence, we're not asking for a gentle nudge uh, or a, a push, a little pat on the back, as it were, but we are praying that he would establish the dominion of the Most High God in our hearts and our minds where there would be nothing left within us that has not been surrendered and yielded and submitted to Him. And so we, first of all, renounce all sin, all worldly thinking, everything that is not of Christ. We turn our back on it at this moment and we turn our hearts, our, the, our, our faces to you, the living God, and say, oh God, have mercy upon us. And as you cleanse us from that sin and unrighteousness, wash us with the water of the word that we may think your thoughts and speak your words and live the life that you have designed for us and by the work of Christ destined us to experience. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us in your glory, the glory of your beauty, the glory of your power, and the glory of your holiness. Give to us an understanding of your word that would be transformational. We don't want to be left in the present condition we find ourselves. We want to be changed Sometimes that change happens slowly and other times you push us forward in large steps. But whatever change you have purposed to accomplish here today, please, Lord God, do it. Some are in need of salvation from sin. Some are in need of that gift of eternal life. That first moment where they experience the new birth, a great awakening. Oh, Lord God, let it come by the word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And others of us are in need of conviction of sin. Some have given themselves to sins of unrighteousness and some of self-righteousness. But all of it is an offense to you. And we pray that you would bring that powerful conviction that leads to our confession and opens the door to forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. Some are in need of comfort and encouragement. Hearts have just been exhausted by the strain of life. Some have borne difficult news in recent days and personal loss of such a deep nature that they walk into a service like this and, and say, I want to sing, but Lord, there's just nothing left in me. Oh, would you pour your great strengthening grace into them at this moment that they may live and know peace and joy and comfort and hope. So there are a thousand needs represented by this small assembly, but all of those needs will be, can be met in you. So come, Lord Jesus, meet us where we are, as we are. In your holy name we pray, amen. You know, I, like you, uh, feel that I could use some good news. And I, I really 
am not spending a lot of time looking at headlines these days. Frankly, it's just a little discouraging and frustrating. Some of it's just old news that doesn't change, and then you do have those new headlines that hit that just remind us it it remains a, a dark and broken world. We were talking about some of this even over the weekend, and there are a couple of different uh, social media feeds and, and whatnot where there actually is an attempt to bring good news. A popular star of film and television, John Krasinski, has begun what he calls some good news. And uh, he's hung this little you know, hand-drawn banner behind him on a wall, and as the camera uh, you know, captures his good news, you see those letters SGN behind him in very colorful words. And I would say, I've only sampled a little bit. My kids have told me a little bit about it. And even Kristen saw something this past week that, that we all find to be somewhat entertaining. Uh, it's informative to a certain extent, but often it's the kind of sweet, if not sentimental news that makes us all feel good. It's the kind of material we wish were more readily available whether it be on the national news networks or outlets where we get all of that stuff. And frankly, all of us say we'd like to see more of that. But I have to tell you, it falls a little short of the kind of thing ultimately we really are in need of. And and I don't mean to be critical of Krasinski or any others who are just trying to report the really good things that are happening in our neighborhoods and the nations of the earth. Those things become a nice diversion for us, but here's what I mean when I say they all fall a little short. It's not news that actually transforms us personally from the inside out. It may adjust your thinking. It may redirect your heart to something that is more wholesome, less discouraging than other news, but it doesn't have the power fundamentally to change who you are or what you do in life. Embedded in the Christmas story is good news, however, that has that transformational power. It's the only good news in one respect that's ever been brought to the people of earth. And I would ask you to open your Bibles to Luke 2, and we come today to the fourth and final part of this series, Do Not Be Afraid. Four different occasions where that phrase is used in conjunction with the nativity, the story of the birth of Christ. The first was with Zechariah, where Gabriel came and said, you will bear a son, your wife who is barren, even in her old age, will marvelously conceive a child. That child was John the Baptist. The second occasion of this phrase was with Mary, as Gabriel announced to her that she would conceive miraculously. The Holy Spirit came upon her, the Christ child implanted in her womb, and the the angel said to her, do not be afraid. The third was with Joseph, as the angel gave him perspective and understanding, erasing the fears that Mary had been immoral, erasing the concern that this would impact his genealogy for days and years to come, that it might have brought some hardship upon him spiritually, erasing all of those fears, the angel says to Joseph, do not be afraid. This child is the Christ child, and you will name him Jesus. And we spent some time last week looking at the power of that truth, the name meaning he will save us from our sins. Well, now the work of salvation moves outward from Joseph and Mary and even from Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it moves into the realm of 
a very interesting group of people. Now, your Bibles are open to Luke 2. Look at verse 8. I'm going to read through verse 21. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. It's a familiar story to the point where we would miss some of the spectacular paradox, even the surprise that things are happening in the way they are with the people that they are. And I want you to note, first of all, look at verses 8 and 9 with me again, that here is God revealing something remarkable, first his glory, to shepherds. Now that doesn't seem like a big deal to us, because from the figurines on our uh, coffee tables and such, where we have our little nativity scenes set, you know, to, at least historically, there weren't many of them this year, school plays and church programs. I mean, shepherds are just a part of it, and, and we honor them and esteem them. Not so in that day. The shepherds were a despised class of people. Historians and commentators alike tell us there, there is good record that these people were the rejected ones, outliers. One author writes, they were indeed a despised class. Not only was it difficult for them because of the very nature of their occupation to observe all the regulations of the Mosaic law and especially all the man-made rules superimposed upon that law, but in addition, they were suspected of confusing, and here's a really polite phrase to describe thievery, they were suspected of confusing thine with mine. So there are two things that are taking place here in that Jewish culture. First of all, the nature of the work, and any of you who've been farmers, ranchers, or maybe even kept a little flock of animals of some kind, you know that you know, they don't operate on a six-day work week schedule and take a day off, do they? They gotta be fed and watered and milked and cared for seven days a week. And some seasons are even more critical and, and demanding than others, and one of those would be the season when lambs are being born. That's part of the reason that many suspect that they were actually in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. 
I've never been a shepherd, so I'm relying on those who have had that experience, whether historians or the experts in the field, and though the scriptures don't say it, there seems to be enough evidence to say it's a little unusual for shepherds to be spending all night in the pastures. So that kind of work kept them from faithful participation in all those Jewish feast days. There's a little bit of irony in that, isn't there? You say, irony, what would that be? Well, not just that these are Jewish shepherds who supposedly would be subject to all the law of Moses and the three major feast days of the year, but here's a second thing that strikes us as we do a little more digging into this. Because of their proximity to Jerusalem, because Bethlehem is not terribly far away, there are many who actually believe the particular lambs that were being born in this context would often end up in the temple as sacrificial lambs. So imagine being in business that supplies a vital, a vital resource for Old Testament worship, but never being able to participate yourself. One author writes, one should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law, the Mosaic law. They represent the outcasts and sinners for whom Jesus came. I pause for just a moment and I say, you know, that, that's good news. Before we even get to the content of the good news, it, it's beautiful to me that the God of heaven sends his messengers to outcasts and outliers, to those who, according to the religious tradition of their day, could not find a place in the assembly of the saints on a Sabbath day worship. Disqualified both in character and occupation. Some of you have felt a similar outlier status. There's a really strong system of religion in, in our area, isn't there? It says this is what you ought to do, this is how you ought to do it, these are the, the rules and regulations, and you got to meet these qualifications if you're going to be a part of particular forms of worship. And it's not just unique to the predominant religion of Utah. Some of us have grown up in religious systems that prescribe things that really aren't spelled out in the Bible but somehow it became important tradition. And if you don't do that stuff and say those words and wear that clothing and no place here, I think it's beautiful that God, while never minimizing sin, just blows right past so much of that cultural construct of religion and says, I got a work to do and I have people to save. Here I come. So these shepherds are despised because of their character they're not valued because of their lowly work, even though it's a necessary work if they are, in fact, supplying lambs for the temple. And again, I, we can't be emphatic about that. But here's the real glory of this passage. Look at verse 9. These shepherds, outcasts as they are, are exposed to the glory of God. And I use the word exposed intentionally here because when the Bible says an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. We need to pause and, and remind ourselves of things that have preceded this in the Old Testament. Do you know there's another appearance of an angelic being recorded for us in Daniel 10? And it, this is gonna be part of what explains the fear of these men, but in Daniel 10, he records the appearance of a heavenly being and describes him like these. A man uh, describes him in terms like these. A man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body was like beryl. That's just a, a really fine and expensive gem. 
his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. No wonder that Daniel, in, as he encounters this heavenly being, falls on his face. And remember, by our standards, we would say Daniel's a holy man. I mean, he lived a righteous life. You just don't read things about his fatal flaws and, and sins. I mean, he's a, he's a righteous prophet. But the sight and sound of this heavenly messenger w- was enough to make him fall on his face. It'd be enough for any of us to feel great fear. But that's not all there is in this. Go, go back to the text and consider that Luke then writes these words, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So it's not angelic glory that surrounds the shepherds at this moment. It's the glory of the Lord. Now there are several aspects of the glory of the Lord that are important for us to remember. And again, if you go back to the Old Testament and you begin to trace the glory of the Lord as it appears to people or in certain settings, there's several characteristics of it. One, I would simply say it's breathtaking beauty. Breathtaking beauty that Ezekiel describes in chapter one, verse 28, as he sees and experiences the glory of the Lord, he says, it was like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. That's the difference. A rainbow, uh, we get 180 degrees of beauty, don't we? And I've been really stunned in the three, three and a half years that we've lived out here, how often rainbows uh, are are appearing and uh, often it seems like particularly what spring summer you know you get those that low uh, late day light coming from the west across the valley and it does its thing through the rain droplets and you see a rainbow we've seen several double rainbows you guys have posted pictures on Facebook and whatever else we're we're all in awe of that well that's just a little glimpse Ezekiel says the glory of God is like that it's just more spectacular And when he encountered that breathtaking beauty of God, Ezekiel writes, when I saw it, I fell on my face. So there's a breathtaking beauty that is so overwhelming to ordinary people like us that it would cause people to fear or uh, express that by falling on their face. There is also a fear-inducing power. In the book of Exodus, Moses describes the appearance of the glory of the Lord like a devouring fire as it rested on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. When they consecrated the tabernacle and Aaron took his position as priest and the people gathered around, Leviticus 9, 23 says that when they came out, they blessed the people, that is Aaron as priest and Moses, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar and when all the people saw it, that is the fire, the glory of God, they shouted and fell on their faces. So there is this fear-inducing power of God, this presence of God manifesting itself through the glory. And it's consistent with what Hebrews tells us about God himself. He is a consuming fire. So it stands to reason that when you see his glory, the manifestation of it, there is a fear-inducing power about it. But I think there's a third aspect of the glory of God that is probably the primary focus or at least the thing that the shepherds are overwhelmed with, and that is when the glory of God manifests itself, it is also a sin-exposing presence. 
And I say that because if you go back through these personal encounters that prophets like Moses and Ezekiel and Daniel and even in in Revelation 1 as the Apostle John encounters the glorious risen Christ, there is this profound sense with all of them that they are wrecked and ruined. And Isaiah records it in chapter 6 when he encounters the living, the unveiled glory of God personally, his first words as recorded in Isaiah 6-5 are this, woe is me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So I'm tying a number of things together. It's not explicitly stated in Luke, but it makes really good sense that the shepherds in that moment of being surrounded by the glory of God himself, not simply angels, but God himself would be overwhelmed with the presence of this holy, powerful God and be painfully aware of their sin. I wonder if standing in the presence of God and being fully exposed for what you are in the light of his glory is a fearful thought. When God reveals his glory to you and exposes you for who you really are, for what you really are, it's always a view that that he would move you from that position of deep humility and fear into another realm. We'll get there in just a moment. But, But many of us would would say to ourselves, it's no big deal. Because many of us live out our days as if we are the glorious ones on earth. As if our intellectual power is impressive or our work ethic is amazing or if our morals are exemplary or our sin not so bad after all. But like the shepherds, we too deserved to to be exposed for what we are and consumed in that moment. And I submit to you that the next words that the angel speaks would not be necessary if these shepherds weren't absolutely terrified that this glorious light of God himself that had not just illuminated the dark hillside of of Bethlehem's pastures but was actually exposing their souls was, was the harbinger of their imminent judgment and death. I don't think the angel would have said what he says next. What does he say next? This is where the good news comes. Fear not. We need to strengthen that a little bit. The angel, we we could expand that thought in this way. You must not be afraid. Clearly they are, and for good reason. But I'm sure that was a little confusing at first, but relieving as well. You must not be afraid. Astoundingly, God has not sent his angel and drenched the hills of Bethlehem in this rainbow-like Shekinah glory to consume these shepherds in wrath and judgment. No, he has come for a different reason. And now he says, behold. We've looked at that word in recent weeks, haven't we? It's a word that draws our attention. it's, It's the angel's way of saying, set your heart on this. I know you got thoughts right now just rolling through your mind and heart. You are terrified, and you're terrified for good reason, but I want you to consider this. And what does he say? Look at verse 10. I bring you good news. Now, the term that Luke uses here is used all through the New Testament for the gospel, the good news. And truly it is. But it's good news of a great joy. It would be adequate in one sense if he said this is good news that that's going to bring you joy but he speaks of it in terms of great joy mega joy what is remarkable or out of the ordinary in its degree and its magnitude and its effect he's saying in so many words shepherds listen you must not be afraid you must listen to what i'm about to tell you because this 
News that I'm about to share has the power to change who you are, to change your destiny. It will change the nations of the earth forever. And he says it's, it's news of a great joy for all the people. And we've been seeing this in, in our study of the nativity. It's common, ordinary people that God seems to go out of his way to find, to love, to rescue, to save, to place in a position of significant ministry that they could never dream would be theirs. But that's the God of this gospel. The good news is not for the religiously powerful. It's not for the highly trained. It wasn't the religious class in Jerusalem that God sent his messenger to. Not one rabbi, not one Pharisee, not one scribe. They'll have access to the gospel in time, but he comes to the humble, despised ones, shepherds. So there's hope for you and me. Because if I were to compare my resume of character and achievements of flaws and sins, it would probably be a longer list than even those shepherds. Aren't you glad this God loves not just ordinary people, but he loves the ones who are in fact despised, rejected, outliers. He says, unto you a savior is born. The angel packages two other words, a title and a name with Savior that are thrilling for us. Because at that moment that the shepherds are exposed for who they are and what they are in the glory of God Almighty, their fear is justified that we, we really are bad people and, and deserve God's judgment. And, and it would have been accurate if the angel had said, unto you is born this day in the city of David the good shepherd, because Jesus is that. It would have been accurate for him to say, unto you is born this day in the city of David the prince of peace that Isaiah prophesied, and that would be accurate. But what is the thing that these shepherds need most at that moment? And it's the same thing that you and I need most, a rescuer, a deliverer. This theme has been all through the Christmas story, hasn't it? We sing it, we print it in our Christmas cards and send them out. We hear it, we share it for good reason, but every one of us needs a rescuer, a deliverer. And this is the one we know who rescues us from our sins and the coming judgment. This is the one that all of those lambs being born in those pastures and sent onto the temple were symbolizing. I think it's beautiful that God comes to shepherds who may have been, we have to use the word may because we don't know for sure, who may have been in the market of producing lambs for the temple, comes to them and says, your rescuer is born. And who is the rescuer? Well, this is what surprises us. First of all, the title Christ appears, the Messiah. It's God's anointed one. This is the one chosen by God Almighty, hasn't been chosen by anyone else. God's Christ and then he says, furthermore, the Lord. Well, that's one of the names. It, it is, it's a title specifically, but we often think of God himself th with this term, the Lord. And it speaks of the supreme Lord and sovereign of the universe. So it is God's anointed, but it's God himself. Another little surprise. The sign confirming the message? There may have been other babies born in Bethlehem even that day. 
We don't know specifically, but this baby who was wrapped in swaddling cloths, that's, that's ordinary. That, that wasn't really like a big wow kind of sign. Although from the perspective of, of the scriptures that God himself would, would express such humility to be born into an ordinary home, swaddled in cloths as any other poor Jewish baby born in that time. But here it is, lying in a manger. What? Not even a cradle? Not even lying in a real bed? Really? A, a trough that animals are fed and watered out of? Yeah, remember, he's the rescuer for shepherds. Totally relates to them. Shepherds, ranchers, farmers, anybody who keeps animals understands the place of all of that. And it just speaks both of his humility and staggering kindness that he would enter this world, but in a very personal way, enter the world of shepherds. It's unbelievable news. But look at verses 13 and 14. Suddenly, a multitude of heavenly hosts, the heavenly army, praises God and says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or we could understand it this way, peace among those with or peace with those he has favored. And isn't it interesting that the glory goes to God? It's not even glory to Mary or Joseph or prophets or priests. It's all glory to God and glory to him in the highest realms. One commentator writes, the heavenly visitors indicate that heaven is impressed by what God has achieved. And what has God achieved? Well, look at the text again. Peace among those he has favored. This author goes on to say, it is not simply an inner disposition or the absence of war. It's not that kind of peace we're talking about, but it evokes a whole social order of well-being and prosperity, security and harmony. I read that and my mind began to race all the way back to Eden, where after the glorious creation, all things are good and, and there's abundance and bounty and God's, God's observation over his six days of powerful creation is simply, it's very good. And it was. But then Adam and Eve sin, and this whole order that God had created in his wisdom and power and beauty and for our good is turned upside down. And though the promise of a curse reverser is given in Genesis 3.15, the story of humanity from that point forward in many ways is a downward spiral deeper into sin. All kinds of chaos and corruption manifest themselves before you come to the end of Genesis alone. And through the thousands of years that that flow from that horrific moment in Eden, not one decade, let alone a year or a day, could be described as a day of true shalom. There's not been peace on earth since Eden. But now, this heavenly army, this heavenly choir, steps out of the heavenly realm and begins to say, glory belongs to God in the highest places because he is, in fact, restoring peace to earth. Now, it didn't come completely on that night, but I am uh, just so encouraged by the great reality that the Prince of Peace who was born that day in the city of David is the only one who could establish this new order of shalom. 
And the shepherds are among the first to experience God's glory and favor as it comes to earth in the person of Jesus. Now, I just want to interject this, and maybe this will, this will serve as, as incentive to uh, jump in. I know we're coming at, to the end of a, a calendar year, and many of us like to try to read through the Bible in a given year, but I would encourage you, what, whatever reading plan that you um, adopt for the coming year, that you make sure it, it is a quest to just see Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. But in particular, pay attention when you come into the Gospels how so many of those Old Testament themes are realized fully in Jesus. And one of those is the establishment of peace. And in Luke's Gospel, as he unfolds the life and ministry of Christ, you see glimpses of this new order of peace being established. You see it in ways like this. In Luke 5, verses 25 and 26, after Jesus heals a a man who's been paralyzed and unable to live his life, the, the testimony of the Gospel is this. Immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God. and were filled with all saying we have seen extraordinary things today so the reversal of the curse of sin as it manifests itself in physical paralysis results in people singing a a hymn if you will similar to what the angelic host says on this first night glory to God you see the glory is his it's not glory to any man or woman or any religious movement or even religious leaders the glory belongs to God You see in Luke 7, verse 16, the testimony of of Jesus entering the realm of the dead. A widow's son has died. And and that was not just a a tragedy of a personal loss. It was tragedy of an economic collapse for her. She depended upon that son for her well-being, for shelter, for food, for any finances, even for protection culturally. And to lose a son as a widow, was a catastrophic event that few of us could fully understand. But Jesus enters that sorrow of the widow, enters the realm of the dead, if you will, and raises that son to life again. And it is recorded that fear seized those who witnessed, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, yeah, you think, and God has visited his people. In Luke 13, he heals a woman with a disabling spirit. For 18 years, she had been actually bowed over, hunched over, unable to stand up straight. But he, Jesus, laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. In Luke 18, we read of the healing of a blind man, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And so the refrain of this glory to God in the highest continues through the gospel account as Jesus establishes peace physically for some, resurrection for others, but it culminates when he comes to the cross and he dies the death that we deserved. And in Luke, 12, or Luke 23, 47, we read the testimony of the centurion who witnessed it all, and he says, certainly this man was innocent. But Luke adds this little word qualifying it, this little phrase. He praised God, saying, surely this man was innocent. You see how the praise continually goes to God because of what he is doing through Christ, overturning the chaos and corruption that our sin has brought into this world. 
And every person who really entered into this in a personal way does so by faith. They, they realize that what they can never do for themselves, Jesus can do, and when they put their faith in him, that's when you see the real wholeness taking place. How could these shepherds move from overwhelming fear of exposure in their sins to a state of lasting peace? By faith. One preacher writes, we habitually and instinctively look to other things besides God and his grace as our justification, our hope, our significance, our security. We believe the gospel at one level, but at a deeper level, we do not. And so human approval, professional success, power and influence, family and clan identity, all of these things serve as our heart's functional trust rather than what Christ has done. And as a result, we continue to be driven to a great degree by fear, anger, and lack of self-control. Let me illustrate it this way. It would be like those shepherds on that night you know, seeing the glory of God, hearing the good news from the angels, even going to uh, Bethlehem's stable and seeing the Christ child and then walking away and, and saying, but at the end of the day, my peace comes from the work that I do. Because after all, we're the, we're the guys who make sure that the temple lambs are born and delivered. And somehow thinking that that work tied into even some religious ceremony or whatnot is, is what at the end of the day makes God happy and justifies you. The truth is that every one of these shepherds is in need of God's lamb, and so are you and I. These shepherds are keeping watch over flocks with a view of supplying lambs for the temple, probably, but God is revealing the arrival of a lamb who will be the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of these people. It struck me as I was thinking about this, in one sense, the birth of God's one lamb signals the collapse of the shepherd's economy. Do you get what I'm saying there? It doesn't mean they're gonna be totally out of work. It'll be 33 more years before Jesus actually dies that death, and it'll be decades beyond that before the temple itself is destroyed and lambs are no longer sacrificed there. But spiritually speaking, these guys are gonna have to find different work to do. But you know, anytime God collapses your personal religious economy where you're trying to transact business with God apart from Christ, he has shown you great favor. And some of you continue to work really hard to make God happy. And he looks at you as he would look at any other religiously zealous person and says in so many words, stop. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only currency of eternal life and true forgiveness. Even your obedience doesn't throw a couple of coins into the transaction. Put your currency of self-righteousness away. Stop it. Hebrews says, if there has been the sacrifice through Christ, there is nothing more to add. I think the evidence that they got it is found in verses 15 through 21 very quickly. They say, well, let's go to Bethlehem and see the things. And so they do. With haste, verse 16 says, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. There's the sign. He's the one. But how do they respond to this? Well, verse 17 says that they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. A savior is born who's Christ the Lord. I think that was the essential content of it. They've, 
they believed it enough to go see, and seeing it, they couldn't contain it, and they run out and start telling everybody. And verse 19, this is a whole nother thought, and you can meditate on this later. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. But verse 20 again returns to the shepherds, and as they head back to the hills, apparently, they're glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Because this is a life-changing moment. It's life-changing news. As I was thinking upon it over the last several days, I asked the question in my own heart, I ask it for you, what, what is the central content of your conversation these days? If we could do a word search of the you know, 10,000 words you spoke over the last however many days, I mean, what, what would be at the top of the list? Would Jesus be at the top? Would his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, the gospel, would that be the, at, at the top of words that have been used or the content of your conversation? Or would the central content of your conversation continue to be along the lines of COVID and vaccines and politics and economy? And there's a place for us to talk and discuss those things. But the great reality of our heart is gonna be revealed by the core of our conversation. And if you've tasted and seen the glory of God and you've come into that personal relationship with Jesus, you can't but not talk. It's beautiful to me that God loves these outcasts who, remember, I, I stated this very briefly at the outset, would never have been allowed into a Jewish courtroom uh, to testify. That's how despised they were. But who are God's first witnesses to go out from the nativity? Shepherds. That shows the power of this rescuer. That shows the power of grace, uh, of God's favor, because that, that's another way to describe his grace. When, when he begins to work that into your life, it actually changes your identity. It changes your message. It changes the destiny of your life. That ought to give every one of us hope, first of all, that God loves to rescue the outcasts and those who really are corrupted. Maybe you, like shepherds, have made, made a habit of saying, you know, what's thine is mine. I don't know if any of these shepherds were guilty of, of thievery on a regular basis, but that's the reputation shepherds had in those days. But I'll guarantee you, that all, that all got put to a stop and a transformation was underway. All glory to God. Because he, by this one, brings peace to those that he favors. Have you experienced that? Is Jesus your savior? Or is he just a savior that you kind of you know, give a tip of the hat to periodically? Is he your Lord? He is Lord. But I wonder if you acknowledge that and give him the honor that he is due, the place in your heart that really is his. He revealed his glory to them and they survived by his grace. He announced his gospel to them and they believed. He led them personally to Messiah, and they worshiped, and now he has positioned them as his witnesses, and they did testify. Do you see a path, trajectory? So as we wrap up our series on do not be afraid, we're not simply trying to you know, have some kind of spiritual pep rally week in and week out as we come here. We're trying to find the real hope uh, and, and the kind of faith that expels fear 
in the character and work of God and all of that ultimately centers in Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he's done. Would you bow your heads with me, please? What's your relationship with the Lord today? Are you dominated by fear? There's hope in him. Are you dominated by sin? There's forgiveness and cleansing in him. Are you dominated by self-righteousness? There's forgiveness and cleansing in him. Only Jesus can save us from our sins. Father, we praise you for your son. We submit our hearts to you and the son. We pray that you would grow us, change us, do everything that is necessary as you save us from our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.